Welcome to Jepper Bites, the JLF podcast. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. What you're about to listen to is a live session from ZJLF at the British Library 2019, and it is called From Hieroglyphs to Emojis. David Levy, Irving Finkel, and Michael Erdman in conversation with Pragya Tebari. <laughs> Precious audience, particularly on a day like today when he is playing uh, against Pakistan in a very, very good match. Um, we cannot but help but wonder what you're doing here. But I am glad you're here. And I'll tell you why. Writing is um, almost second nature to us. It is uh, so utterly commonplace that we can't help most of the times but take it for granted. But what we forget very often in the process is that the history of writing, which is 5,000 years old, is so intricately intertwined with the history of the evolution of human race that to talk about writing is to talk about everything. And that's exactly what we're going to try and do in 45 minutes and then open it up uh, to all of you to participate in the conversation. I'm going to start with you, Irving. Um, and I'm going to start right from the beginning, the beginning of the history of writing, the beginning of writing itself, um, pictography and cuneiform and hieroglyphs. So could you, start, could you just tell us a little bit about where it originated and how it sort of evolved at the very beginning? Right. Well, um, you have to start at the beginning, and it's an archaeological matter, because to trace the first appearance of writing in the world, um, you rely on archaeology, and as far as we understand it, the first efforts at writing appeared in ancient Iraq, somewhere around 3,500 BC, possibly a lot earlier. Now, the thing about a discussion of writing in 45 minutes with all of us together is we have to have a simple definition to begin with. And as far as I can see, writing itself is a process of making marks on a surface from which another person can retrieve the sounds of the words and the language which are encapsulated in it. This is my simple everyday family definition. Now, the thing is this. You had a period in the world when there was no writing at all, and it's what people used to call prehistory. And then you have the beginnings of writing, as far as we know, in Iraq, but maybe also somewhere else. And what is true there is that the earliest signs that we can see, we find on clay tablets, are what we usually call pictographs, because in principle, they are like the sort of draw drawings that three-year-olds do when they first start to draw. So the head stands for a man and legs stand for to walk. And at the very beginning, you have a series of very simple um, uh, marks or, or symbols from which ideas and sounds can be generated. Now, the good thing about the world is it didn't stop there. It changed from that writing system, preliminary stages, into a beautiful and flexible system whereby the cuneiform writing system developed so that any language could be reduced to syllables with special aids inside it. So in other words, if you learn cuneiform at university, which I hope you will do after this meeting, you will have a writing system which will enable you to write Chinese or Latin or Swahili using this proper writing system. So you have a jump of pictographs which are simple, elementary, and for children, like emojis, in my opinion. And then you move on to a real writing system. So we don't know whether this process happened lots of times or once. But in my opinion, it is quite likely 
that there was contact from the original stimulus because writing appears in Egypt and elsewhere gradually afterwards at a very similar point in time. However, the most important lesson never to be forgotten is that archaeologists don't know anything at all. And one day, a piece of writing might turn up in Russia, which is 30,000 years old, and we'll all be confounded. But it is a danger warning about pontification. It is my curse to have to go on from that point and pontificate. Um, okay, so I wanted to, I wanted to, you actually led up to my next question, which was, um, I was going to ask you if writing orig uh, originated organically at uh, several different points in the, in, in the world around the same time, or did you think that there was contact? You clearly do think that there was some level of contact. Given that there are a lot of people uh, of Indian origin and maybe even Pakistani origin in this auditorium, um, I do want to ask you about the Indus Valley script and uh, what are your thoughts on why it hasn't, you know, why historians have been able to read it in quite the same well, don't, way. Don't worry about that. I'm going to do it because no one else has done it yet. So I thought I might as well take off a couple of days over a weekend and sort it out. Now, the, <laughs> the problems are simple. Of course, as everybody understands, like with the Rosetta Stone, if you're going to decipher an unknown writing system, you have to have a bilingual which unlocks the other one. And the problem with the Indus Valley writing is that we don't have such a bilingual. Secondly, the inscriptions are almost unexceptionally very short indeed, so they are almost certainly proper names, and you could never decipher English from a phone book. So the thing is, the archaeologists who enjoy themselves over there and presumably spend most of the afternoon sleeping should get on with finding more inscriptions. There is one big one, a kind of lintel, which shows that the writing system was not limited to seals, but was actually a public information system, because it probably said gentleman's lavatory or something like this. So that writing system is not just for seals, and this is what people think, that because you have seals with its writing on, it's writing for seals, period. But what would happen, which is what I believe to be the case, is that everybody in those cities wrote on palm leaf. Because all the palm leaf would disappear. And you'd have a perfectly flexible, wonderful thing with sutras and all sorts of religious philosophy from the year dot all disappeared. And all we have is these stupid little stamps. So the only answer, there are two answers, I can tell you, but it will take me some time. So you don't mind going home now, do you? So, <laughs> I'll tell you one really hair-raising matter. There's a man called Asko Parpala, who's a kind of genius, who used a computer in order to analyze the script of the Indus Valley to find out which of the many signs appeared in conjunction one to the other, and which never did. So from this, you can deduce a certain quality about the writing system. The second thing is this, that when Sir Leonard Woolley excavated at Ur in southern Iraq, he found from the same period of the Indus Valley, about 2600 BC, seven or eight seals of unicorn type, which they always have this beautiful ecliptic, with writing underneath in the Indus Valley writing system where characters were found in conjunction that they never exhibited at home. So this proves beyond any shadow of a doubt this was a phonetic writing system whereby somebody from Mohenjo-Daro ending up in barbarian southern Iraq hearing a bloke's name could write it in their own script in a way that they would not normally do. So that, to me, shows that you are dealing there with a fully-fledged, sophisticated writing. So it just needs some kind of weary, jaded genius, as I say, to take off a weekend and just sort the thing out. So 
probably sometime at the end of the summer I'll look into it. Cannot wait. I also wish you'd take up archaeology in your spare time, but uh, I'll petition um, that a little later. All right, one quick question that I wanted to ask you. You mentioned uh, writing on palm leaves. Um, I know you're a big fan of, or I believe, I don't know, you're a big fan of clay tablets. Uh, could you tell us about what the early instruments of writing and, uh, you know, what, what writing was being done on? Um, tell us about. Well, in, in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, when writing first began to preoccupy people with experiments, they used as their support clay from the banks of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, which happened to be of a very high quality and ideal for taking sharp impressions. So it was a clay-based society, and they used it for all manner of things, but they always, for the next 3,000 years or more, wrote on tablets of clay, which, when dry, last forever. So this is why I'm so excited to be in this library, surrounded by vulnerable kinds of records, like books and paper because clay will last till the end of time. So this writing system um, was more like thinking than drawing, because you had to produce the science by impressing it into the surface of the clay. And very often, uh, people sealed a tablet with a cylinder, leaving an impression on it, that's a ratified. Now, the seals from the Indus Valley, which are stone with a little handle, are obviously the same principle to seal and ratify a document. So I imagine that the document in India the palm leaves with a string around the middle, and you took a bit of clay, plunked it on the knot, and sealed it with your seal. So it would be closely analogous and very understandable. No, we think of printing as a fairly modern phenomenon, but would it be a stretch to imagine that the early Babylonians would also have uh, perhaps uh, come upon uh, movable type? Or, I mean, given that you're talking about clay imprints? They did. We know Nebuchadnezzar, the second king of the world and the biggest man ever born, apart from his forest. Um, he had bricks stamped with a very boring inscription when he rebuilt Babylon to make it into the new rival of Manhattan. Every tenth brick had this, I'm the king of the world, I'm the greatest person, I'm the greatest person. And the um, way they did it after a while was to cut it in reverse on a stamp. And once upon a time, a lady came to the British Museum with a British Nebuchadnezzar, which was very obscure to me at first. And I realized what it was because some of the signs in the four lines were upside down, which means that the stamp which engendered this inscription uh, for us to read had type which could be removed from the matrix and washed under a tap, so to speak, to get rid of the clay, re-put back in to carry on doing it, and somebody put one of them upside down, showing that they actually invented movable type, but the only thing they used it for was this damn stupid inscription. They could have done the whole of Gilgamesh and Lord knows what else, but there we are. Given that you're the world's greatest um, living expert, according to me, on everything, but definitely on cuneiform, um, what is the what is the early content that uh, one is reading in the first couple of um, decades of of writing, and how does that differ across geographies? Well, in our case, it's a sobering matter because if you are a poetic individual, you imagine that writing was created by sensitive persons who were struck with the beauty of nature and wanted to make. And their own ideas clear for the future. But in point of fact, writing came into the world, as far as we know it, by the ancestors of the inland revenue. Because the very first texts that we have are administrative totals that some miserable twerp would then add up and check 
and come after you if you'd got it wrong. Though they had their hands on us since the first writing ever was born. And what happened is that other people afterwards realized the potential of this writing, and they made dictionaries of their time, they started to make poetry, we can read about the gods. So by 2800, this and other brave thinkers uh, started to use writing for literary purposes and other things. Okay, one uh, final question to you before I move on to other speakers as well. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the evolution of the relationship between languages and scripts from the beginning of writing. You know, it's a funny thing. In the British Museum up the road, the big sister of this little place, um, we do a lot of work about writing with the public, and they're all very interested in it. And one of the things is that most normal people, by which I mean normal people, um, never think of themselves in writing in a writing system. They only think of themselves in writing in a language. And the fact is that writing system and language are completely and utterly separate. And this is something in drafting that's rather interesting. For example, in Dunhuang, they found some Chinese manuscripts uh, that looked like all other Chinese manuscripts and columns of writing, which turned out to be in Aramaic. So some scribe who was fluent in the script manuscript could transpose the words of Aramaic that some speaker did into Chinese script. But that illustrates in an extremely lucid way that the, the, the language is a language phenomenon and the script is a tool for recording it. And I'll tell you one other thing before they take away my microphone, that my friend Jeremy Black, who did a seriology in Oxford with Gurney, in the first week was given this, a signs to learn, which of course he could do because he was only 18, and then he had to go home and take the first chapter of Pride and Prejudice, and transcribe the words, it is the, and so forth, using the cuneiform writing system. So he labored over the whole of the weekend and produced this cuneiform um, transcription using the signs to record the language, not to translate Jane Austen's prose into Babylonian language, but just to use the signs in order to record it. So somebody else who never read Pride and Prejudice but knew the script Um, just for what it's worth, I'd sooner surrender my microphone than take away yours, but I will bring Michael in at this point in time. You have, and taking off from what, uh, what Irving was talking about, you have written about allography, and you've, uh, in fact, written wonderfully about a letter that is written in two different uh, uh, scripts. What does this tell you about the relationship between scripts and cultures? So the, the letter that I've written about, which is in Writing, Making Your Mark, on at the British Library now until August 27th, and is actually written in two different scripts, but also two different languages. So we have the top of the letter that's written in Arabic, in Arabic script, and the bottom of the letter that's written in what's uh, often referred to as Swadaya, sometimes as Neo-Aramaic, uh, a language that's spoken by Christian as well as Jewish communities in northern Iraq in the Syriac script. Uh, so there what we see is, is someone who's switching between languages, between scripts, um, and sometimes we know that uh, scripts would have been used, a different script would have been used because it would have been a marker of the identity of the person. Uh, a different script might have been used because it was harder to decipher, it was harder to read, perhaps, on a, a quick examination. Uh, here, these are two standards. So the majority of Arabic speakers will write Arabic in the Arabic script. Uh, some have not in the past and some do not today, depending on how you view a language like Maltese, whether it's a dialect of Arabic or a language on its own. Um, and then people who uh, read and write Syriac um, will often write in the Syriac script. Uh, those who read and write Swadaya or modern languages like Turoyo uh, in southern Turkey 
might use, for example, the Latin script, uh, the Latin alphabet, because that's the one they're, they're more comfortable with, but it's sort of two dominant uh, different systems. But I think hearing uh, what, what Urban's been saying and, and just thinking about allography, I'm, I'm sort of reminded as well um, of my uh, Linguistics 101 class at, at the University of Toronto. And we had one lecture that was about writing systems and scripts uh, to complement sort of this general idea of, um, of language and it, as a phenomenon in society. And the professor asked us, showed us the Hebrew script, the, the Hebrew abjad, and, and, and said, does anyone think that English could be written in this writing system? The class kind of puzzled over whether or not it was possible, and then started giving all sorts of answers as to why it couldn't be. Uh, so, oh, it's, it doesn't go the right way. Uh, it doesn't have vowels. It doesn't look the right thing. Oh, it's got too much history. It's got not enough history. It's too cursive. It's not cursive enough. It's this going on and on and on until the answer... Well, of course it can be, because a language like English has been written in it, and continues to be written in it. And indeed, Yiddish has long been written in the Hebrew script with modifications and continues to be used. It continues to use that script. And so it brought to the fore that idea that, as Irving said, language and writing systems are separate, but within particular contexts, we, we conceive of them as being bound together. We see them as being bound together because of the way our cultures teach us that there is a dominant script that we use for a particular, particular language. The way that we conceive of them as being markers, not just of the language, but of our identity. So in writing Making Your Mark, we have a song sheet from 1911 from, from this country, from London, where uh, a printing press that uh, catered to the Jewish community, the Yiddish-speaking community, prints a song in both Latin script, uh, Latin, the Latin alphabet, and the Hebrew script, uh, and it's the same song. So there you can see that the language could have been written in either script, in either way. But it looks odd to see it in Latin characters because we're taught that's not the script you use for Hebrew, or for, for Yiddish, rather. That there's a particular connection because of the culture that the script is used as a marker, as a differentiator of our identity, um, in this particular case of the identity of Jews in London, that, that this is the language they speak, this is the language that they produce, and uh, it's, it has to be separate from other languages, other dialects and lacks and, and other modes of speech uh, that are produced in the Latin alphabet. So it's, it's such a tightly bound, in a, in a particular context, a tightly bound identification that it's not necessarily language that it's representing, so much as identity, the way we view ourselves and the way we want to be viewed by others. Because you mentioned identity a couple of times there, I'm going to try and complicate this conversation a little bit and uh, ask you about, at some point in, you know, in, in history, we see the emergence of this idea of one nation, one language, and one identity. And uh, even though, of course, there are nation states where most nation states, multiple languages are spoken, there's a dominant language that is sort of politically ascribed to that particular state. I'm curious to, to understand what this idea, what kind of impact it might have had on the languages, the different languages and scripts that existed at that point in time, and did they suffer at all as a result of this idea? So I think this is quite a, an interesting question. I'm going to try not to nerd out and, and eat up all of the time and answering, but I, so we have sort of two different bodies of literature about, about this. One that's sort of studying it, so contemporary uh, scholars who will look at languages and the idea of the nation and, and how they come together, and, and there are different views as to um, why 
language and nation are, are linked. So why, for example, all Germans, people who are of the German nationality, not just citizenship, should speak German um, as being as a, a reason for why they belong in the state. And then there are others who theorize as to how to build a nation. Um, and so we see various different people who come up, whether they're nationalists, they're socialists, communists, Marxists. Um, and my own particular research has looked at some of the Marxists, some of the socialists, whether the Austro-socialists like Otto Bauer or some of the Marxist-Leninists like Stalin, who enunciate this idea that language is a, a very important part of forming the nation. And part of that comes into this idea that if you're a nation, you're perhaps an, uh, an imagined community, to use a contemporary scholar's words, you have to communicate with one another. So if the nation is a body, is a polity, you have to have a means of actually talking to one another. Um, people like Stalin and, and Otto Bauer also add an economic component, so this idea, Marx himself uh, enunciated this idea that it's sort of a, the nation is an imagination of the, uh, an imagined community of the bourgeoisie, a marketplace that's captured and developed in order for the bourgeoisie to develop its factors of production. Um, and so if you're going to develop this space, you need to have a way to communicate to the other members of the nation, and with that you need one particular language. You need one language that you can issue orders in, that they can speak to each other, that you can organize production. Of course, if you're communicating over long distances, you need to do it in a particular writing system. Um, and so often it's the idea of having just one writing system that's directed from the center, uh, that is used to, to bring the nation together. Uh, and so we see different groups have, have already stumbled upon this idea. So I, I spoke about Jews with the idea of Hebrew script. Jews using Hebrew script both for Hebrew and for other local languages that they spoke. Uh, around other different countries, other different communities, you have the same thing. So Turkish uh, was pre predominantly written in Arabic script, but it could be written in Greek script, in Armenian, in Hebrew script, in runic, uh, as well as Latin. Those are different communities that identify themselves, much as Jews who use Hebrew script Yiddish, as being distinct because of their particular writing system. Uh, but as the nation state formed, and they had to be brought together into one particular group as a nation, as the Turkish nation, the tolerance of different script traditions falls out because everyone has to communicate with everyone else. Everyone has to be given orders or given information from the center, from the state, really, in one way. And that way, the state decides is the Latin alphabet. Uh, so it's really, it's quite a fascinating process that we see where you need to have this one mode of communication. Obviously, you can write Turkish in so many different ways. But if you're the government and you want to communicate to all citizens in an equal fashion and make them all feel like they're all part of one project, they're going to be bound together in some way. And that, that way happens to be the Latin alphabet after 1928. You know, uh, before I bring David in, I, um, I want to talk to both you and Irving a little bit about the exhibition that's ongoing in the British Library at this point in time. And uh, I don't know how many of you are aware of this exhibition. I know Michael's mentioned it a couple of times now, but it's called um, Making Your Mark. Is that what uh, it's called? Writing, Making Your Mark. Writing, Making Your Mark. It's a wonderful exhibition. I've seen it a couple of times now. And uh, especially since you've, uh, you know, you've, you've been sitting through this talk, I highly recommend that you go and see it uh, hereafter. But um, there's one particular aspect of the uh, exhibition that I want to talk to you. I, I, I want both your views on what it was like curating that exhibition and what sort of discoveries. I know it's a topic that's very familiar with, with, uh, for both of you, but even so, the process of putting something together a lot of times illuminates things, you know, brings up ideas that you might not have been in the forefront of your mind. So if there are any thoughts, please do share that, and particularly one aspect of it, which is through the objects in the exhibition, there is a kind of relationship 
established between religion and writing. I would also like your thoughts on that. So I'll, I'll try to be succinct. Uh, well, with, uh, Irving as well, so yeah. Um, so uh, curating this ex exhibition was both a, a great blessing and a challenge. Uh, it was a challenge because I'm familiar with Turkey and, and contemporary Turkish history, uh, but obviously, unfortunately, perhaps, the exhibition doesn't just deal with that. Perhaps fortunately, if you, if you go through and you might be a bit bored if you have seen 120 objects about writing in Turkey in the 20th century. But um, So it took all four of us who were curating this exhibition quite a lot of, of effort and intellectual and, and physical effort to learn about different traditions. Really, we wanted to create something that embraced the history of writing, the histories of writing in various different parts of the world. Uh, the different technologies of writing, the different uses of writing as people, how do we relate to one another through writing? So it meant that we had to learn quite a bit. We learned quite a lot from one another. We learned quite a lot from our colleagues at the British Museum, uh, to whom we're very grateful for their expertise, um, from a number of different sections on how to interpret objects. We, we mainly deal with texts uh, that are in book form or manuscript form. Uh, so if it's an object like a clay tablet, like a two-meter-tall, one-ton block of stone, the Maya Stila, we need their assistance in, in learning about this. Uh, and then there are so many different connections that we discovered as well, connections be across regions, across time, uh, different ideas of different peoples, whether the Cherokee, the Bai, um, uh, various different communities in Africa and Asia creating writing systems as a way to challenge uh, colonial ideas about prehistory history, about people without histories, without writing, and their inferiority to the metropolitan center. Um, but when it comes to religion, one of the things that was quite interesting that came out from it is, obviously we have, um, we have this relationship between writing and, and, and religion, but it's not as straightforward, it's not, it's not nearly as simple as, as some might think. Uh, so we have in the exhibition a number of different objects of wonderful calligraphy from seven different parts of the world. Some of, many of them are, are religious objects, and so we see religion has motivated beautiful writing. Uh, people who are very pious, people who want to pay tribute and to show their devotion to a particular dogma, a particular faith, will create these in incredible objects. There's a 17th century Persian Quran that is filled with gold, with incredible calligraphy. Uh, the, Ramsey, the Ramsey Psalter, one of the great treasures of calligraphy from this country. But we also have to recognize that there are many religions that don't rely on writing. And so we weren't able to provide examples of all of the religions, of even... Uh, many different major uh, belief systems because there's a lot in there that's oral. And we have to pay tribute to the fact that religious belief, and, and Irving can speak about the, this over the long history, but it's not, it's not reliant exclusively on, on text. Uh, and many belief systems continue today that rely on that oral tradition that um, eschew written, written texts because they're not seen as being ways of continuing an organic faith, an organic relationship to the faith, uh, that's defined within that particular community. I think I'd love your thoughts on this. I'd, uh, also, I'm, I'm curious, has, uh, through your work, have you encountered anything that sort of also documents the shift towards monotheism from polytheism in these areas? Yes. Um, about the exhibition, I, I thought it was very interesting to be in on it. Um, I would actually like to do it um, in the... Um, in the middle of the empty reading room, the British Museum, where we have nothing at all, and put all the writing systems of the world all under one roof and make people go ooh and ah, because I think exhibitions should make people go ooh and ah, and I think writing is one of the very few miraculous, extraordinary achievements of the human race, and it should be celebrated in a more articulate, embracing point 
Now, as for the relationship between writing and religion, this is a huge topic. But one interesting thing is this, that the Babylonians um, made lists of everything, including lists of the gods in their pantheon. They had hundreds of gods, big ones, medium ones, and little ones. And they tried to sort them out, who was who, and everything like that. And at the time when Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, some scholarly priests in Babylon wrote these texts in which they took the 10 or 12 most important of the gods in the pantheon, all of whom had a strong individual identity, such as god of architecture, god of um, irrigation, and so forth. And they rewrote religion so that all of these major gods with their own temples were but aspects of the one god, Marduk, who was moving closer and closer to the Old Testament idea of a single god. So the way they got round it was to give them an office in, in the administrative bureau of, of, of their main god. So this is actually an astonishing matter, especially as you realize that this is when the um, refugees, so to speak, from Jerusalem, who were taken there by Nebuchadnezzar, were setting up house in Babylonia and encountering these things. And this was exactly their own conception, that there was only one god and all the others were a load of nonsense. So possibly there was an intellectual and religious interface between these communities, which stimulated within the old, long-running literary um, um, traditions of Babylonia the idea that maybe we need to think about this again. So the thing about all these matters you're asking about is that the evidence is so diffuse all over the world throughout all history that all you can do is pick on a single thing like that, for example, but you can't extrapolate from that principle because human beings are so complicated. One other question while we're on this topic. Um, do you think that the default position for homo sapiens is to be to have multi-languages or just one language? It's an interesting thing. It's when babies are born, you could teach them seven languages without any difficulty, and by the time they're eight, they can give instructions to the chauffeur in any language you like, which is, of course, an advantage. So human beings have, as part of their apparatus, the capacity to learn a great number of languages, which in this country is totally frittered away by teachers who can't even teach one language. So the other matter is, of course, that big and powerful countries like America um, are populated by people who only speak one language. They have two dialects. One is normal and one is shouting. So when you, when you put this stuff together, you can't really generalize about anything. Fair enough. Um, David, I want to bring you in. Um, Irving earlier was talking about how um, well-preserved some of the clay tablets are. You've done work on digital um, libraries. And I was wondering that this, this sort of idea that one has, that they are really a revolution when it comes to documentation and preservation, does that hold water? Let me just start by saying a word about my own background. Obviously, I'm here to play. You, know, you notice the temporal flow here, right? So I'm supposed to be the future, but except that um, what you need to understand is that I'm trained as a computer scientist indeed. But I, after I finished my PhD at Stanford um, in the late 70s, I moved to London to study calligraphy and bookbinding. And I actually have a degree in calligraphy and bookbinding. I'm very interested in the relationship of different materials. And I'm not somebody who thinks that digital has the answer to everything. In fact, what I see is a greater continuity rather than a, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, which is what I come out of, everything has to be new, everything has to be different. Um, but in fact, what we're seeing, I think, with digital libraries and digital materials is a yet another set of, uh, basically, if you like, and I'm looking at Irving, another kind of clay has been created. And the same work 
has to be done with this new clay, which is to figure out the modes and the genres of writing in that and how they relate to the earlier ones. And I, um, so I, I don't think that there is actually something quite so remarkably new about the digital world, except for this really, I think, huge political point, which is maybe the main point I can make in the seven or eight minutes I have. What's happening in the digital world as a result of this new, not fully formed clay is that old conventions and norms of writing and speaking are being partly dissolved. I mean, look at how we can now shop um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right? I mean, or as, as one example, or how the week and the weekend, certain so social constraints are being are diminished or eliminated. The big question we're facing now in, in, in this digital world, which we're beginning, and we're, we're still in early stages of it, is when, as we create those new conditions, under what conditions are we, are, are, is writing going to be used for the good, and when is it going to be used in dangerous and, and, and less helpful ways, right? I mean, I think a perfect example, which I might speak about another, in another minute, if, if there's time, is the really challenging stuff that's going on around social media now in terms of politics, certainly in the United States, as the loss of the gatekeepers of institutional institutions like libraries and publishers allowing everyone, quote, everybody to speak um, is leading to a kind of pandemonium in, in the United States where dangerous actors um, are coming in to incite tribal differences. So I think what I'm trying to say is we're in a very interesting moment. The clay is not yet formed. And it behooves all of us to begin to understand how we're going to shape that clay for the sake of greater good and not for global um, pandemonium and, and, um, um, and disagreement. Because we started with the hieroglyphs, there is this, there, there is this sort of idea that um, given the popularity of emojis, it is taking us back to the dark ages of primitive sort of writing. Is that, is that something you'd agree with? Well, first of all, I mean, I would turn to the, the true scholars on the panel to, to respond. I'm, maybe there wasn't a dark age of, of writing. Maybe that's too simplistic an idea. So, but if we put that aside, I mean, I, th I think that emojis represent a wonderful explosion of creativity and, and offer tremendous um, potential. Um, my sense is that they arise out of emoticons. Does everybody know and remember the emoticons, the semicolons and all of that, which were originally, I think, intended in the, in the days of email, which we still have, by the way. We haven't left it behind. Um, as a way to add inflection and nuance into discussion when you're on a listserv, when you're actually no longer talking to individuals you know, but you're talking more broadly, to be able to say, I'm, being, I'm trying to be funny, this is a joke, or, or, or whatever. And what we see, and, and, and I think, by the way, this is one of the reasons why predictions are almost impossible, is that we can't see where all of this is ultimately going. But, but I think that there's a, a, a richness and a life in the, in the colored um, emoticons that, um, that, that have the potential to, I mean, uh, um, to, to represent um, something very wonderful and exciting that, of course, is being embraced by young people. I mean, you, you, m most of us have probably uh, gotten a text where we've just said something to someone else and somebody put, you know, uh, shows a birthday cake or um, a smiling face or something else. And the immediacy of that feeling 
the, you know, in your body, the emotion that's being represented by that, I think is a wonderfully direct thing. But I don't see that arising as, a, as an independent system so much as I see it actually being connected back into our textual systems. Well, that's a pity. Um, I, uh, the, is everyone in the audience uh, fam uh, familiar with the myth of the Tower of Babel? Babel, however you pronounce it? Yes? No? Maybe? Okay, so, I, I, I mean, emojis could well be the first step towards a universal language. Now, I know Irving here is a huge fan of emojis, so I'd like to definitely bring him in and uh, ask him to share a couple of thoughts on it. In the first instance, emojis have nothing to do with language. They are a simple, factuous system of communication by people who are, A, too damn lazy to say anything, B, totally ill-equipped to express themselves in their own language. If I take a spread of evidence from my own children, if we were going to design emojis from scratch, the first 12 of them would be the word like. And any other word would be almost entirely redundant because this, in my opinion, is an example of something filling a vacuum when facility in self-expression, mastery of subtle grammar, the ability to communicate real ideas instead of birthday cake was paramount in the world, was paramount in the world. Listen, if you take the Oxford English Dictionary, open the huge thing wide, I guarantee that none of you will know more than one word on the whole four columns of spread. And the English language, like the Arabic language and the other historical languages in the world, are full of richness where the most subtle distinctions can be expressed by vocabulary, syntax, and the arrangement and the balance of a sentence. And writers know this because that's what they do. And people who use emojis are not only on the edge of becoming robotic, they are halfway down the mine shaft. And I hate them with the passion of my being. Irving, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say I, I'm one of those people, so uh, what, 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 can I, what can I do? How can I reform myself? Well, I, I'm merely on his side because I, as a writer, I don't get the advantage of being able to, uh, luxury of being able to use emojis. However, final question to all of you. Um, and this, you know, I'll, I'd like to start with you, David, but we can now record what's going on as is happening with the session right now on video, on audio. Why should we still think about leaving or preserving or documenting stuff in writing? Wow. Um, it feels actually almost too obvious to know how to articulate, but I know Irving is going to have a lot to say about it, and, I, and, I, and I'm sure that Michael will too, so I'm going to leave plenty of time for him, him to respond. No, I think that all these different modes of communication um, serve their purposes within the particular cultural milieus in which, within which they were created. And as much as we care about the past, we, we will care about the various, the, the writing systems, the, the forms of content. I mean... I mean, I'm a computer scientist, not a historian, but I draw heavily on history. And so, I mean, in a sense, if we're going, we want to celebrate the path that humanity has been on and going on, we would never want to lose the, um, what, what people are ultimately um, tr trying to say in all the modes and all the materials that we, we are lucky enough to have. Michael? All right. To begin with, I think it's a bit of a red herring to say that because we have these technologies, we're going to lose writing. I mean, we have, we've had the telephone for decades and decades, and we still write to communicate with each other. We still write, I mean, we 
rarely we might handwrite letters, but we still write emails to each other. We still write text messages, including with emojis. <laughs> but it's still writing at, at some level with, uh, in order to communicate with one another, despite the fact that you could pick up the phone and call and, and do it in, through voice telephony. So I, I don't think that we have to worry that we're going to give up uh, writing just because we have video recordings and things like that. Um, but at the same time, I think we always make choices, as, as David said, in our cultural milieus to, to record or to not record, and why we might want something written down so that those words are there, so that the nuances are there. And I'm thinking in the opposite uh, frame as well, there's a, a Mexican uh, ethnographer, uh, Fernando Benitez, who in speaking about the Huicholes, a, a nation in Mexico, uh, an indigenous nation, says uh, the Huicholes sort of um, preempted Mexican politics by understanding that sometimes you don't want to record things. And, and you don't want things written down for posterity. Uh, so sometimes we, we might want to record things and we'll continue to record things in words because we want to have that nuance and that flexibility of interpreting them. And sometimes we won't because, uh, as I'm, I'm sure every politician will understand, you don't want a written record of what you've said because it's a lot harder to dispute those words than to be able to say, well, you, you're misremembering uh, what, I, what I've said. My but question was wait a bit. The yeah. trouble is, in the modern world, is when you have evidence that somebody said something, it's dismissed as being not reliable and not true anyway. So that undermines that argument totally. It's going on at the very moment. Look, the real reason for keeping records, in my opinion, is to do with the, to, to combat the arrogance of the human race, because the, the human beings begin, believe that they are the apogee of creation and they are the forefront of evolution and they are marvelous and flawless. And when you know anything about history, you see how wrong that is. There is no progress in the human race. There is no learning from, from error. There's no learning from experience. People blunder around like a load of chimpanzees on a rugby pitch. And if you have written resources from earlier times, and if they are made available to the world when the world is a civilized world instead of the mess in which we live, there's a lesson from history which is a crucial, crucial thing that you have to learn from experience. You have to know that war never, ever, ever does any good. Why don't we know this yet? And the only reason, the only way that people understand this is if they know about the wars that happened and people don't know about what happened in the Second World War, they don't know what happened to what happened in the and it's only with records that you can stand up and say that this is what happened, this is what we know happened. That's the real reason. I mean, with, with that, I just ask, well, who's writing those records? Well, that's another matter. And, because, no, and who wait, has access to wait, that technology wait, to, to with write them? And... With any kind of literature, the reader has to interpret. And most records have an agenda. You're a fool if you believe everything without contemplating how it reflects its time, how it reflects the person, how it reflects religion. You always have to interpret. But if you don't have the resources, you haven't got anything to interpret. And it's really important to know what happened before. I mean, I heard a general on Radio 4 being interviewed when he came back from Afghanistan. You know, he sat down in the chair. They asked him what it was like. He said, you know, I'll tell you something. Afghanistan's a hell of a bad place to have a war. We're not going there again, you know, as if we'll go down to, when we feel in a militant mood, we'll go down to the um, news agent and find a report about good countries to go and have a war in. But he didn't know anything that had happened in Afghanistan before. He didn't know anything about it. That is incredible to me. So that illustrates in a minor way the crucial nature of history being brought alive and rescued. And I'll tell you one other thing which is rather interesting. You know Google Translate. Everybody uses this, and then they pretend they can read Italian. But the interesting thing about Google Translate 
is their professed ambition. And because we dealt with them in the museum, they came to see us. We went and learned out to find out what their names were. They were all like Mr. Mr. One and Mr. Two and Mr. Three. So when we talked to them, we were Mr. 19 and Mr. 38. That showed them. Anyway, the point about it is this. Their plan is to find a computer system whereby any language in the world can be translated into any other language in the world. Not French into Swedish, but all of them. This is their ambition. That's a very interesting uh, perspective, and it also shows me that underneath the, 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 the um, existence of independent languages, it no longer has to be stubborn and irritating, because with this development, many of the problems of all these languages in existence can be removed. There Thank you for listening to Jepper Bytes. This podcast is produced by Launchora, a storytelling and creative learning platform, in association with Teamwork Arts, the producers of the Jepper Literature Festival. If you haven't already, do subscribe to our show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ah.